welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we will be reading and discussing Lucia Shin's Death's End, the third and final part of the Remembrance Verse Past series. This is Season 5, Episode 1, The Staircase Program, where we'll be discussing all of Part 1. We previously talked about the three-body problem in Dark Forest, and the hosts have varying levels of knowledge of the rest of this book. My name is Dan, and I've read the entire book and the entire series. This is Tim, and I've only read up to the current week's reading. This is Amin, and I've also only read up to the current week's reading, and also along with Dan and Talia, I co-host the Rehydrate spoiler cast, so if you have read the entire series, or you're like me and you don't care about spoilers, you should check that out as well, and it's in the same RSS feed. Yeah, and just to clarify, even though this is the final part of the series, we still will be having spoiler casts this season. Um, so be on the lookout for those, because obviously a lot of stuff happens in these books. So I am going to want to discuss them in more detail as we kind of talked about them in, in increments. And I think uh, this is be an interesting point to listen to the spoiler cast, because you know we'll be talking about stuff like directly in context, like stuff that this part is foreshadowing. We can talk more about that in a little bit more detail rather than like in the three-body problem, like it's harder to foreshadow stuff that happens like all of it at the end. So I encourage you to listen to uh, Amin and Talia and myself on the spoiler casts. We're also going to have this season, like I mentioned before, some guest hosts joining us for some future episodes uh, to get a little bit more perspectives on uh, some of the parts that we're going to have for this book. So be on the lookout for that. I also wanted to mention on, uh, I saw on Reddit, actually, you know, we, we talked a lot about the Netflix show that's coming up that's going to be uh, done by Benioff and Weiss, but there's also at the same time a Chinese adaptation that's happening. And apparently they put a date on it, which is the fourth quarter of this year. So I don't really know much about it. And there's supposed to be a trailer that I can't seem to find. So, but if I do find it, I will put a link into it. But, you know, the good news is that there will be a something sooner than the, because we don't have no idea when the Netflix show is coming out. So it'll be interesting to, to see that. Yeah, I think that's great to have like two different visual takes on the series. Yeah. And I think there's even a third one. There's supposed to be an anime too. I, I haven't heard any more about that one, but... Yeah, uh, hopefully it's translated. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yeah, I'm not sure how we would go about watching the the Chinese one legally. I'm sure there will be other ways to see it. Someone mentioned that they just put them on YouTube after after some time, and like I don't know if it's legal or whatever, but yeah, apparently like people can just watch the, you know stuff. They have like some what is it like um, some Chinese TV service has like uh, exclusive content, which is where this is coming from, and apparently they just put it on YouTube. Maybe it's region locked or whatever. Yeah, Tencent. Um, yeah, Tencent. That's right. Yeah, I mean, like, you can't get to YouTube in China anyway, so maybe, like, they're safe to uh, <laughs> to put it on YouTube and not have to worry about the subscribers in China being able to access it easily right. anyway, without VPNs and all that stuff. We also got another listener email. Uh, we got it a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, since the past, uh, since we ended up season three and starting this one, it's been a couple of weeks. That's why there's this delay in last episode. I did think it was interesting. Um, and it's a listener, Rob. He says, uh, I think you said you're a computer scientist. Uh, speaking to me, I, I had, I did study computer science. I'm, it's been a while, but I did, you know, way back in the day, study computer science. If so, they must be familiar with the P equals NP problem. The Dark Forest very briefly mentions one sentence that the droplet solved the traveling salesman problem instantaneously. I'm not an expert myself on the subject, but the idea of the problem is finding the shortest distance needed to travel from city to city without redundancy. What the droplet did was take the problem one tiny step further because some of the Earth's spaceships are all moving in different directions. I've got no idea if all the spaceships movements versus the stationary cities add significant complexities to the P equals NP question, though. 
again, I'm not, it's been a while since I studied this stuff, but very, very briefly, like P equals MP is like basically like the levels of complexity of solving problems. And if they can be solved in what's called polynomial time, that's what P stands for. Things like adding numbers and uh, finding primes and that kind of stuff is considered to be a P complexity, P problems, because they, they could be solved, you know, relatively easily. Um, and, and they can grow large, obviously, but the, they don't grow exponentially, where NP problems or uh, what is it, non-deterministic or non-polynomial time means that they grow exponentially and they can be solved, they can be verified easily uh, by having the solution, but solving them without the solution is very complicated just because of solving things exponentially as it, as it grows becomes really hard. The traveling salesman problem specifically, like I mentioned, is, you know, if you think about, you have all these different points of uh, cities that the, the salesman has to go to, what's the shortest path between all those cities without going back, without going back to each city. So the you know, shortest path and that's considered to be an NP hard problem, uh, meaning that it's hard to, even given the solution, it's not, it's hard just to determine if that's the right solution or the, the, that that's the proper solution is the shortest path because you still have to calculate it. So the reason that he mentioned this is because you think about the droplet attack, you have this grid of, of ships that the droplet goes through and, and destroys all of them. And it has to basically solve the traveling salesman problem of like, what is the shortest path? I mean, obviously it's kind of easy because it's a big grid. The Trisolarians, they mentioned specifically, or they mentioned something in the, in the book that they solved it instantaneously, which obviously is an NP hard problem. Uh, so they have either more advanced algorithms. It's not just a matter of computing power. It's a matter of determining better, better, better algorithms, or at least like maybe like they have super advanced computing technology where even solving exponential NP, NP problems is, is trivial. And on top of that, the traveling salesman problem, they're adding even more complexity by having not just traveling between the shortest path between different points, but like also recalculating it on the fly as the ships kind of move away. So uh, it's an interesting take on a way to think about like how complex and how advanced the Trisolarians are, because like we consider it to be like nigh impossible to do that kind of thing in a static environment, but the Trisolarians just you know just do it um, relatively easily. I don't know if Tim or Amin, you have any more thoughts on that. I mean, it's I I, I don't think you guys didn't study computer science. No, I did not. Yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't uh, familiar with this. I only take it on faith that if they could unfold a proton that they could right. also do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I you know, there's some interesting, I mean there's a lot of like super complicated uh you know, theoretical kind of papers and uh, it's it's one of the, like the classical computer science problems like are all NP problems P problems at you know, at the end of the day is it just a matter of time before we find better algorithms to make them NP um or to make them uh, polynomial uh no one knows, or people have different different ideas. But I'll, I'll link some videos that um, I think do a good job of explaining them. But the, the, it's cool that like Leo Sushin has this kind of stuff in his mind as he's like thinking about different ways that how advanced the Trisolarians actually are, <laughs> and then the, like the super complicated problem that are basically unsolvable by humans is like just like not a big deal for the Trisolarians. Yeah, I think the whole droplet, uh, like the droplet itself, is just something designed. Just draws from whatever. It, technical experience he has in college or, you know, was similar to the, uh, the material that the, uh, droplet was made out of. Um, yeah. The strong interaction forces. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, 
it's there to be like the fulfillment of all their, you know, problematic dreams. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. You can see him like, you know, in college, like thinking, oh man, what if there's an alien race that solved this thing? <laughs> like can yeah, do it instantaneously. Yeah, yeah right. definitely. So yeah, like Rob, thanks for your email. Uh, I appreciate your your thoughts. And I think it's interesting. Um, interesting thing to think about. So let's just jump into the summary for this first part of Death's End. So in the besieged Constantinople, Emperor Constantine the Eleventh meets with a prostitute named Helena, who promises to kill his enemies, the Sultan, who is attacking the city. Skeptical, he gives her a test to return with the head of a prisoner, which she seemingly magically achieves, but only returns with his brain. Unfortunately for the Emperor, she is unable to kill the Sultan, since the higher dimensional fragment that she ended up using for real had left the earth behind at that point. We are introduced to Yun Tianming, an aerospace graduate who has late-stage terminal lung cancer. He decides, rather than spending what little money he has left over, that he will utilize the newly passed euthanasia laws to take his own life. And even after recovering a, a large sum of money from his old college classmate as a repayment for his drink idea that made his classmate rich, he is not able to use that money towards his treatment, so instead he decides to anonymously buy DX3906, a remote planetlet star, for his college infatuation, Shangxin, utilizing the UN's newly created Stars Our Destination project. At the start of the crisis era, Shangxin, an aerospace PhD, joins the newly formed and secretive branch of the PDC called the Strategic Intelligence Agency, or the PIA, where they research ways to defeat the Trisolarians. Initially dismissed because of inherent sexism, she ultimately proposes a plan to fulfill the PIA's mission to accelerate a spy probe to 1% the speed of light to intercept a Trisolarian fleet, meanwhile gaining the trust of her boss, Vladimov, and the PIA chief, Thomas Wade. Her plan, dubbed case the staircase program, would use bombs detonated in precise succession in space to propel a probe using a sail to the desired speed. During the research phase that started out on sending a hibernating person to a frozen dead person ends up being only a frozen brain to lower the weight enough to be able to achieve the 1% the speed of light. While searching for a suitable candidate to send, her classmate tells her about the terminal condition of her former classmate, Yun Tianming, who she believes would be a good candidate. The PIA works in secret with world governments to pass the euthanasia laws, so a candidate's brain can be harvested to send into space. Tianming's attempt to conduct euthanasia is interrupted by Cheng Xin at the last moment, but he realizes that it is only in a professional capacity, not out of love because he gifted her the star, as he initially thought. All the while, Cheng Xin had no idea who had given her the star, which has little value other than sentimental. Tian Bing accepts the mission despite his fears of space and the thought of eternal torture at the hands of the Trisolarians. It is only as Tian Bing is about to die that Wade tells Cheng Xin that it was Tian Bing who gave her the star, but she just misses him before he dies, and his brain is preserved for spaceflight. She watches as the staircase program is executed, it succeeds in that it achieves the 1% speed of light, but due to a slight error in the direction of the 998th of 1003rd bombs explosions, the probe and Tianming's brain veer off course into the vast expanse of space. With hope lost for the probe and despair for Tianming's future, she accepts the mission to hibernate in hopes that she can help the future PIA in efforts to defeat the Strasolarians. Like we did last season, we do have a slate of new characters again. We have Yun Tianming, who is an aerospace student. We have Hu Wen, who is Tianming's college classmate that gave him all that money for the drink. We have Cheng Xin, who is an aerospace engineer and a PhD. We have Mikhail Vladimov, who is a Russian and Cheng Xin's boss at the PIA. And finally, Thomas Wade, who is an American. 
and also the PIA chief. So I wanted to start with a question for you guys. I know we had started with a favorite problem. We have Wang Miao, and then we move on to Dark Forest. And we have Lao Ji and all those characters. Now we're introduced to a whole new slate of characters. Were you expecting that? Does it bother you that we're not having the same main character again? I guess for me, I, I expected it. And, uh, you know, these opening chapters, you know, kind of took hard swings, uh, you know, both positive and negative in my, like, enthusiasm. Because, um, uh-huh. like, the initial the initial uh, Constantinople chapter was really interesting. You know, like, oh, where is this going? Um, <laughs> you know, type, and, you know, we can talk about that uh, later. But, uh, yeah, address your question. Then I kind of, like, shifting to... Uh, Yun Changmin. It was a little difficult at first because it, it it was a bit of a bummer to be like, okay, like have to learn this new character, and not so much learning a new character, but you, you have yet another kind of lovelorn sad sack. Yeah, yeah. You know, supposed to care, but you know, he's just a l- even more pitiful version of Luigi, you know, or at least Luigi at the beginning of you know uh, last previous book. Yeah, I know it was a it was a little difficult getting through his like early stages here. It's just like oh god, like this guy, you know, why do I care about this guy? No, I had that. I had the same thing. Like when I when I when I was reading this, I was like another character, like another like he seems very much in the mold initially of Wang Miao and Lao Ji, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Kind of a I mean, kind of like uh, you know, Lucia Shin like has his like protagonist in mind, and it's always kind of a nerdy Chinese guy, right? Yeah, I mean, getting to see what he's set up for like, yeah. obviously took a turn that I wasn't expecting. And as like uh, Changxin introduced and kind of made more of a character, as well as the I, I liked the two PIA guys, um, hmm. like, you know, it got more interesting. But yeah, a, a bit of a dip in my enthusiasm, at least in the early goings, especially kind of after the hard turn of the Constantinople chapter. Uh, how about you, Amin? Yeah, I, I, I felt the same. I, I think somewhere in the last book, I stopped being really invested in the characters at all because I don't think these books are about the characters. They're just about this situation that Earth is in and and what kind of cool science fiction stuff can happen as a result of that. Again, knowing that this was going to be these types of jumps, I wasn't surprised that there were different characters, but also like both you and Tim said, he was cut from the same mold, at least initially, as some of the other characters, but that's not what really I was focused on. Sure, but I mean, you know, the author gives you enough uh, of their internal monologue and, you know, that he seems like he wants you to care about these characters and be well, interested in them. To, yeah. So, you know, which is, again, could be a bit of a break, uh, you know, or just the, the pacing of the series uh, took a little bit of a downturn here, but it wasn't for long. So pretty positive on this, you know, opening section overall. But yeah, a little bit of a sigh, you know, when we're <laughs> introduced to him. Yeah, I'll say without spoilers that I think, I mean, obviously I've, I've said this millions of times, but like this is my favorite of, of all the books. And this is a, that's a very common sentiment across a lot of the fans of the, the series. But I think it is my favorite because the characterization is, is generally much better for the, for the characters that we follow throughout this book. And the science is also like at a much grander scale. I, I think right. And I think you can tell that in the early chapters too. Maybe not the science. I mean, the science is kind of more, it's it's awesome, right? Like the circus program is really cool. Um, but like, it's not as like groundbreaking. Uh, it's more grounded in like kind of reality because like we're in basically present times, right? right? But I think you can already tell like, 
the internal monologue of Yun Tianming and the and and Chengxin and her her you know, already she's starting to kind of have more agency, or not even kind of has more agency than any other female character that we really had, um, besides maybe Ye Wenjie. You know, I think you can already tell like the seeds are being planted there of more characters to kind of you know hang on to throughout the the book. Yeah, I will say, I mean, they are characterized relatively well compared to the rest of the series in a in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a very good, like, impression of who Tianming was, like, fairly, uh, yeah, fairly early on. It was just, like, who he was, was, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and again, you know, it takes a turn, but it did feel like, you know, he's being set up to, okay, here's another nerdy Chinese guy who's going to be special for some reason. Right. <laughs> the, I think what another thing was interesting about this, the start of this book is that, you know, in the second book, we didn't really have many through lines between the first and second book. But I think it, we just in this first part, we already have like at least references or direct perspectives from characters we know. So we have a whole chapter from Yang Dong, who we didn't really meet directly. I mean, we kind of talked, we, she, we had a chapter from her perspective in um, Three Body Problem, but she has like a whole like chapter here where she talks about some pretty interesting concepts. Um, we can talk about those a little bit later. And she, at that time, she also references her mother, Ye Wenjie, and like learning that she was actually the person tra- communicated by Trisolaris. We have Luo Ji is sort of like a kind of mythical figure almost, right? Like he's like, oh, this famous wall facer and he's like Chinese. And then like, they're kind of like in the mix as he's getting um, the assassination attempt at the UN building right after he gets uh, shot by the, the ETO during the assassination attempt. And then we also have a kind of a indirect reference to Wang Miao, where when they talk about the staircase program and the sail, they talk about the material that's actually holding the sail is the flying blade material. That was the big thing that the the, the were well, one of the big things that the Trislinarians were trying to stop in three-body problem, the nanomaterial that actually cut the the judgment day ship in half. And But it seems like they have a lot of different uses for it. I think they're going to use it for the, the sail. They're going to use it for the space elevator. So you know, it's making another return here that I thought was cool. Yeah, it seems like it's a, well, I think we've talked about this before. It was kind of like an unnecessary sort of technological leap that's not realistic in our real world present day, but you kind of had to invent this, this nanomaterial or invent the, the idea that it is possible in our present day tech, early 2000s technology for the rest of Earth's you know te- technological efforts to be possible here. It was an, definitely an interesting reset. Um, you know, I wasn't expecting to go like back to let's say present day or you know the early days of the the crisis and you know i think yeah. it's interesting having a, this kind of parallel perspective and this parallel story going on this is a question for tim because tim yeah. hasn't studied these books as closely as dan but tim do you <laughs> do you think that if a reader was coming in and this was the first and only book they read do you think they would be completely lost or do you think he does a good job of of setting the world and all that kind of stuff. I, I I thought it was I thought he did a good job of of you know the Constantinople thing I thought was a good mysterious type of opening and and then he throws you in this world and I don't think again I don't think the Trisolarians or the characters or anything matter that much but um, I thought he did a good job of establishing the world much more quickly in this book than he did in other books and I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were so you know asking like if, yeah from the perspective of somebody for whatever reason started with the third book in the series correct it's, it's yeah it's hard to I mean it's it's hard to 
put myself in that that mindset. I guess now that you say you know say that, I guess as a like contained story, it's hard to answer. I mean, my instinct is to say like no because like as you like after the Constantinople chapter, there's like all of this like context for what's going on that that's a lot of world building to do to sort of outline what the crisis is and what, you know, why people are doing what they're doing. Yeah, I think you mentioned it kind of offhand a couple of times. Like, I think Yotam Ming is like saying, oh, now the media doesn't care so much about like the Trisolarians or not as much anymore. I think they mentioned the Sofan block a couple of times. And, but like, I think that stuff would be kind of hard to comprehend if you hadn't read, if you didn't have the context of the first two books. Like if somebody gave me this as a, you know, and didn't even tell me it was the third book and something and just gave me this manuscript or whatever, like I would, definitely think I was still reading a story that was like in progress or in media rest. You know? I think it also brings up an interesting point about the one thing that I thought of when it was announced that this series was going to be made into a TV show about the timelines and how they're actually going to film it. And one of the early ideas that uh, I don't know if I came up with it or someone else came up with it, but uh, I think someone else came up with it. But anyway, like the idea of like cutting, um, uh, Cheng Xin and uh, Luo Ji's story together because they happen kind of simultaneously here. The issue of like kind of transitioning main character to main character is like maybe okay for a book, but I think it's going to be difficult for a TV show to kind of maintain having a separate character every single TV show. And I think a way to do it because they happen contemporaneously um, is to have Cheng Xin's story and Luo Ji's story happening, you know, maybe at the same time and like kind of cutting back and forth. I could see that. I don't. I don't necessarily think it wouldn't like work if they kept the structure as it is as like a third season opening stinger is like i think that would i think that would grab the audience enough to kind of like reset and go back and like you know see that this whole other thing was going on i don't think it's necessary for them to do that but that's an interesting idea i guess it for me it depends on like how much that that would like spoil you know like how how well they sync up i don't know obviously what happens in this book you know after this after this section so um would you have to then like cut off one branch and focus on somebody else because to show the other side would just would spoil too much for the other branch you know yeah, I think it's also interesting if like they didn't cut the stories together, like how to me, I thought I thought it was really cool how like Luaji becomes like sort of like this famous figure that you've but we've been following for the past like book, right? And then all of a sudden like now he's like just like some famous guy in the eyes right. of your new main character. So that's an interesting perspective, I think. I like the idea of intercutting, but I agree with Tim that I think I think finding out much later that this whole other thing was going on at the same time and a I'm not to be spoilerish, but I'm assuming that the stories intersect again at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the logistics of of filming all of this is going to be massive. Although, I assume Game of Thrones was massive as well. Um, <laughs> again, only having as much knowledge as part one of up to part one of this book, I think the sequence it's in makes I think raises the interest the most rather than just having it all revealed at once. And then so both of you guys also had mentioned that you really like the uh, Constantinople chapters. I, I guess maybe we can talk about that a little more. I think it was yeah, definitely interesting. Um I I read this uh, this this first chapter like about a week ago, so there's some things I'm still like quite remember whether if it explains how Helena like actually had magical I mean obviously the the reveal here is that some alien thing uh was present um you know a higher dimensional fragment whatever that is um yeah gave her some sort of an ability but I never I don't quite remember what her like ability was or why they 
you know what like how her magical powers manifested well i think the, the main thing was that you know when she the emperor asked her to get to get the head of the guy of the, yeah. the prisoner as a test she came back with just the brain and then they and then they opened the guy's head and he had no brain and they're like well how the hell did you do that and like the reveal later on of the higher dimensional fragment is supposed to give you a clue of like how maybe she got that okay yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if that. Yeah, the the brain thing ties into you know um, the the brain the brain we sent Futurama like into in a capsule to <laughs> right the Trisolarans. Yeah, I I, I like yeah. the opening chapter too, partly because it seemed more so it it didn't seem like at first it didn't seem like science fiction. It seemed more like fantasy, like there's this yeah. magical whatever that was going on. And again, it it was it was so di- the world was so different and the storytelling was so different from everything else. I think that that's what was most interesting to me. And I I like historical fiction and I guess historical fantasy fiction or whatever. So I I I would have read a whole book about this, but obviously <laughs> that's not what we're reading. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think this is dipping into the, you know, ancient aliens kind of, you know, trope, what we have thought thought of in the past as magical or miraculous things, you know, might have been alien, uh, you know, technology or alien presence, you know, making their, themselves yeah. known. And I think it's kind of a, know, a cool little spin on that. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And I would have loved to see that explored more. I, yeah, I don't know if this comes back or we kind of, I imagine at some point, you know, this is kind of the opening singer will like understand what the higher dimensional fragment was. But yeah, I mean, I think also the interesting thing here is that obviously there is some contact with aliens or alien presence much earlier in our history. And I don't know if that kind of goes back to the the dark forest concept in that this was some, whether this has a direct correlation to what we're seeing in the present day, um, you know, with the Trisolarans or has something to do with the Trisolarans, or if this was just some rare intersection with one of the alien, other alien races, you know, that the life is, the universe is supposedly teeming with. Dan, do you remember your reaction to this the first time you read it? I think I didn't like it that much. <laughs> I was like, I wanted to get back to the story, you know, like I wanted to like, why are we like set in this historical setting? I think it didn't super register with me the first time that it was like a higher dimensional fragment, like how important that was the, yeah, I mostly just want to get back to the, get back to space. Right. <laughs> and like, that was my, my reaction the first time I read it. I think in context, you know, thinking back on it, it is important and it, it is interesting. Uh, but yeah, like my initially, that was my reaction. And speaking of uh, kind of broad reactions to this book, uh, a, a major criticism that's kind of levied across this book and the entire series is the sexism, right? Like people always uh, kind of say like, oh, this, these, this series, this book, this author is maybe misogynist or sexist. And we kind of see, and I, I don't know that I agree with that, but like that's, I think there's some examples here that kind of lend itself to that, to that criticism. Um, so Obviously, all of the low G parts in Dark Forest pretty much are, are kind of told from a misogynist point of view where low G doesn't really, I mean, he cares about this, his his wife, who, who becomes his wife in the abstract, but more as like a thought of, I guess, perfect woman. And then we have Wang Miao kind of being a stalker and then Yun Ming like really being a stalker here, uh, you know, like even going to the point where he like goes to Shanghai to try to just wait for Chengxin to try to see her. I mean, I guess it's his dying wish, right? But still, it's not, not a good look, I think. And then we have all of the, you know, when Chengxin starts putting her ideas forth to the PIA, like everyone's like dismissive of her. She, everyone's like, oh, she's just a girl. Like she can't have good ideas. And then like she eventually has the best idea. 
and they also like have a super sexist reaction to her. And I, I quoted a passage here saying, but they are mostly men. And they thought by just giving her a chance to talk, they would have a perfect excuse to appreciate her physical attributes. Like, like ugh. <laughs> so like, they're just like letting her talk to just like check her, check her out. It's not great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the case where it's fuzzy as to whether it's just the author depicting sexism consciously or whether there's a sexist part of himself that's inserting himself in the narrative and expressing himself through this. I mean, it's kind of fuzzy to me. Like, I don't think, because, you know, obviously with the reactions to, that you just mentioned with Sheng Xin, it's like, you know, he's constantly uh, expressively acknowledging sexism. Like he's put, you know, he's yeah. saying, oh, these guys are sexist. He's like, it's not because Lu Xin, you know, himself is just sort of naturally expressing sexism here i think the more damn possibly damning parts is just the constant with like luigi and yun Ting ming it's like you're not sure you know because these the sage Chiang ming seems like a protagonist of a sort you're just, you're just not sure whether these are somewhat self inserts of the author or he's just consciously writing these kind of sexist characters and just saying hey these are flawed guys flawed protagonists yeah and maybe that's just the biggest flaw i can think of is like maybe these characters are just you know too introverted and nerdy to overtly go after like real real women you know people that they're interacting with rather than like making them up in their mind or you know like remembering someone who'd like happen to talk to you in college right yeah i mean it's it, it could go both ways it's just like is he drawing upon his experience with this type of guy that he know you know that he's well acquainted with or is he that guy in a in a sense um and i th think it's kind of up in the air i don't i i don't really know other you know than to like maybe read more interviews with him or to really know but yeah but the the obviously across the you know the the sort of focus on male characters um is just in a general sense you know I, you know i think a, a knock against the series you know or yeah i i agree with him i i think it's i think it's annoying and probably frustrating to read all the sexist responses but also i mean if you want to give the author the benefit of the doubt he's he's just doing a very effective job of of depicting the inner monologue of of these sexist characters but i don't know i don't know if if people are prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt because yeah i i think in general his female characters are written in such a way that it just seems more awkward coming from in this context than it would normally i think like it really doesn't establish any character other than just to say hey look at her she's attractive and that's all people care about yeah and of course she she gets she wins in the end wins being in air quotes so so maybe <laughs> he's he's trying to show that all these other people are wrong to be sexist but i don't know I mean, he obviously has, you know, important female characters, you know, Yi Wenji and uh, and now Chongqing and, you know, the head of the UA you know, or the, the UN oh, is yeah. a woman, you know, so it's obviously he just doesn't camp on them too long or, you know, make them the, the central characters of the books. And um, to kind of point to a comment you put further down in the notes, then, you know, like the meta commenting on his own work where he says, uh, you know, one of the characters talks about Tiang Ming's um, purchasing this. of the star, yeah. you know, he says, and he just made a romantic gesture that i'd call ridiculous if i read it in a book or saw it in a movie like he seems to be <laughs> he seems to know that 
he's writing Chiang Ming as kind of this pitiful character. So I don't think he's like a, an insert, an author self-insert or anything like that. I think he, he knows that he's kind of a, a little pathetic and a little sexist in a way. Yeah, I, I put that quote in there because like there's some other, I, I wanted to kind of like put that in your mind because there's, there's some other um, instances of self-referential criticism of his own work in this book. So <laughs> I just keep a lookout for that. And I also remember reading, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember reading an interview or a translated interview from Li Xin saying about like asking specifically about sexism and the, the character of Chang Xin. And he, he would say something like in his mind, like he doesn't really think about the characters as being male or female, but kind of thinks more about archetypes of, of the characters. I don't think he's inherently sexist or misogynist, but yeah, more playing on the kind of nerdy engineer archetype to kind of fulfill the story role. And then, yeah, Yuan Ming here uh, obviously like needed to anonymously give the star to her. And like, so a way that he would do that is, yeah, because he couldn't talk to her face to face. So he wanted to anonymously do it. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about was actually during the last spoiler cast, we had given a question to Amin. Like Amin had said that he thought the end part of Dark Forces was particularly interesting because they revealed the title of the, of the story uh, in there. And I was like, oh yeah, Dark Forest. And then so also early in this book, we also get the meaning of Death's End. And I'll just read the, the quote here saying, uh, as modern biology advanced apace, people began to believe that Death's End would be achievable in one or two more centuries. If so, those who chose hibernation were taking the first steps on the staircase to life everlasting. So there you go. That's the meaning of Death's End. <laughs> I actually told Amin that it was not as uh, profound as, as Dark Forest, but uh, anyway, did you catch that, I mean, when you were reading it? Yeah, yeah, I did I did catch that, and you're right, it wasn't as profound. <laughs> I remember when I was like, oh, I wonder what Death's End means, and like, I think your answers were, were actually better, because <laughs> you, you had said something like, uh, yeah, it's about like the end of the universe, or what, what was yeah. it? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, when there's no more life, there's no more death. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that he, uh, you know, like obviously the hibernation is a big part of the second book um, and how, you know, humans get to jump into the future. It's kind of, it's uh, interesting that he kind of chose to, you know, have this little side like insert to flesh out. Um, well, I mean, he really doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he does describe a, you know, a bit of the, I guess, science. Beyond. I mean, it wasn't like, could, like, I don't think it's meant to be like convincing because it's obviously not possible but mm. the way he described how we like like uh like replace somebody's blood with this like you know and you know oh yeah the antifreeze cool. stuff right <laughs> yeah with like antifreeze he never really says how we like put the blood back in i guess but i guess suppose <laughs> if you can replace it with one league you can put it back in or what how you store it but um yeah but yeah i don't know if this uh i don't know if he's like introducing the sort of science or the their pseudoscience you know behind hibernation you know whether that's yeah becomes I mean, more important later on in this book um but it is a yet another kind of like he's but you know he bites off a lot like you know like philosophical and scientific concepts you know and this it seems like another thing he's throwing on the pile here um yeah talking about how you know you could write a whole series about what would it mean for just humanity just to be able to like live forever or at least hibernate, put themselves in stasis forever without having a intergalactic alien story? What would that just mean for life on Earth? Right. I mean, we already see in like the last book where people, where Loji and uh, Dasher like kind of travel to the future via hibernation and get cured, right? So right. that presumably expands, extends their, life, their lifespan for, you know, however many years. So people can theoretically 
live forever, right? If they just keep, if if they can't figure out what the problem is now, hibernate for a couple hundred years, they'll probably figure it out then. Right, and there's a zillion social issues you could, you know, camp out on. Yeah, that would come from that. Like, who gets to do it? Who's privileged enough to, act, you know, have access to that? And why, you know, um, right? You know, why them and not this person? Yeah, I mean, it'll just for if it was for real, it just end up being rich people. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, just some uh, a parallel I saw when I was reading this book is the the euthanasia process that uh, Yuntain or the other guy, uh, you know, Yuntain's roommate, and then Yuntain Ming. Uh, follow where they had to like go through all those different prompts to like make sure that they really want to do it. It just re- really reminded me of the mental skill process. And I thought the mental skill process was interesting in itself. And like, this is just like another continuation of kind of like really making sure that you want to undergo this thing where mental seal obviously doesn't kill you, but it's an agent that does kill you. So did that remind you guys of of that part? I think it's a good, it's another example of how he does a good job at like thinking through the like, like legal framework, some of these things would have to, you know, happen through um, mm. you know, realistically. And it didn't like directly make me think of the mental seal other than like that aspect that yeah. he tends to, tends to think through at least the, 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 the higher level legal, legal framework that, you know, this might have to, if it were introduced into society would have to undergo. Yeah. I thought that was interesting how they, I mean, at the end of the day, they passed it because they wanted to get a brain, right? Like they, they kind of secretly passed it, but they couldn't just like take people's brains. Like people had to volunteer to do it, but even if they volunteered to die, they couldn't do it. So yeah, it was an interesting workaround to actually like getting a brain to to descend into space. Sure. And they didn't even end up using it for uh for Yutan Ming's brain. <laughs> I guess let's just get into the staircase program here. Like I said, the staircase program was just a way to uh take a probe and I I don't know like they had like a really like solid purpose in their mind to do it, other than like, well, we probably should just do something, right? And so they said, let's send a probe. And then like I think it kind of got munched around saying, like, well, let's send a person. They <laughs> ended up being just like turning to a brain just to just the the sheer logistics of it so but i mean it's this is the this this part's big scientific kind of concept you know and it's an interesting concept too where you have like the series of bombs exploding in a very very particular pattern to be able to accelerate it um to one percent the speed of light so this this concept reminded me um not not they're going to the speed of light but if you're a million years old and you played the original met i don't know maybe other metroids as well but i played the original metroid on the nintendo entertainment system and you if you once you get the bomb you can like set off bombs and curl into a ball and like you can shoot yourself over walls that you wouldn't be able to jump over otherwise so that's what i thought of this whole time when they were describing this i was like oh it's just like in metroid so <laughs> that's, cool. that's, I, a, that's a good analogy that, like that, that was the connection i made with it i'm okay. obviously not the speed part but the but the going somewhere where you wouldn't be able to get to otherwise part well, and and it's your and it's your quest to kill a brain in a jar too. So that's best right too. I didn't make that connection, but you're right. <laughs> to backtrack a bit to like this excerpt, um, you know, near the beginning of this chapter where he talks about the crisis infantilism. To me, also seems like a bit of another like meta commentary on his work or meta commentary on like the past, you know, the previous book in that he talks about. Uh, the Wallfacer project and the stars are destination as these pretty much says that they're these just almost goofy kind of flailings of humanity in crisis of like not knowing how to handle this. And, you know, we talked in the previous book about how like the Wallfacer project seemed pretty goofy 
And humanity thought that too, right? Like right. Yeah, when he woke up 200 years in the future or 180 years in the future, they're like, wall, wall facers. Who has, oh, that, right. that, that ancient stupid joke, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he like, cause this whole, you know, like staircase, you know, project, it's cool in a sense, but it is also very goofy and it also seems like the product of crisis infantilism. And I don't, you know, I don't know if he was introduced this excerpt at the beginning to kind of like set this up. Yeah. I mean, the, the science behind it is neat. Um, and the way he frames this as, you know, like nuclear bombs are, at this point in our technology, you know, seem like a relatively primitive or conventional weapon, you know, or conventional technology. And, you know, how this is like an expression of a our, our physics research being locked down, that this was kind of an expression of us just managing to achieve, you know, the almost the impossible with what we got. Like, I thought that was like interesting. This whole plan to send a brain in a jar seems still seems really, really goofy to me, not just because of Futurama. Um, <laughs> like the, the leap to like, I, to what they hope to achieve with this brain, you know, um, and by sending this, you know, like the, the initial idea of a probe or something that could gather information obviously makes, you know, uh, some sense, you know, but, you know, when that's, you know, obviously found to be impossible because of the weight of the equipment. So like we land on, we can't even send a person, we can send a brain. This still seems like this is such a shot in the dark to me even if he could bank on the idea that the trisolarans would have some way that they would even want to like reconstruct the brain into a thinking person that could achieve what you know they they have this passage at the end of the, the chapter here where they they say that i guess no yeah i'll read it here for a second like the pia didn't even need to figure out what the spy had to do when he or she got there as long as the person could safely and successfully be inserted into the fleet. The possibilities were endless. Given the Trisolarians are transparent in thought and vulnerable stratagems, Wade's idea became even more attractive. That's pretty much the justification for it. That seems like really, really flimsy. Like the possibilities are all endless that they just might punt the brain out the airlock. Like this seems like such a Hail Mary pass. Yeah. For this, this giant, you know, for this enormous effort. I think it's like during the crisis era, they're just trying to think of anything they can do. Right. And like the Wallfacer program is is that kind of thing. It's like, I don't know, let's just send a spy into the Trisolarans like fleet. Like, and maybe like they'll be able to infiltrate, maybe they'll send messages back. Like, worst case, like we don't get anything out of it. Right. Like, that's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, like at least said, a hail another pass. Like, let's just try something. And they needed to try something. Maybe they actually thought it would work, or maybe it's just like to placate the public to show that they're trying to do something. Well, yeah, but th is this like secretive? Like, it doesn't seem like this. They're very like they're very public facing with this. Like, you know, he tends to, you know, talk about the societal reaction to like wall facers and other things, but he doesn't really like go into that here. So I kind of just thought like this was just something being done kind of on the down low, like a little. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Side project. I mean, they definitely know. I mean, the staircase program where they launched, you know, a thousand bombs into space, like the public would have re realized that, but they could have had a you know cover story for that too. Like who knows? Like we're just putting bombs around the, the solar system, right? Yeah. I don't know if they actually like announced it. I guess I always like had the impression like this is our plan. Like we're sending a spy into Tresslayers. Maybe they didn't like detail, like they're just setting up brain. <laughs> yeah. That, that was my guess anyway. 
yeah, it's just, um, you know, at this point, it feels a little bit of a repeat of Dark Forest or the whole Wallfacer and Luigi, you know, project in that, like, here's this uh, uh, initial thing that seems very goofy, but, you know, especially with, you know, Luigi's, uh, you know, spell and everything, everything around that, but that obviously, you know, like at the end of the book, you know, like wraps around to being extremely important um, and Luigi, you know it being extremely important for reasons that seem counterintuitive at first. And is this the setup for another one of those things? We send Tiang Ming's brain into space, gets blown off course, but like, is this going to turn around and be very important? Yeah. Someone actually had the interesting comment on Reddit too. Someone like a side of, you know, the podcast or whatever, someone posted an answer in the question um, about the, they said, uh, wouldn't it be extremely dangerous to shoot a human brain as it tries to learn fleet? At this point, the Wallfazer project was already in full swing. So I think the idea here is that like, all right, well, we sent a brain to them. Like, could they just map that brain? Could they just like figure out how to think, uh, you know, like how we could, they could read our thoughts by just like, right. you know, they already obviously have like super advanced technology if they, they're willing to like say like they can revive the brain and clone the, uh, and clone Yintian Ming or what have you. Uh, right. So is this also short-sighted? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like it to me because it's like even if like th this you know successfully inserted into the fleet as a sleeper agent, he even says that he has no you know he takes the he doesn't take the oath and says that he has no uh, loyalty to humanity. Like, what were what are they expecting to him to do, and how would they even communicate those ideas, or how would he even communicate anything back? It seems very a lot of effort for a very very goofy hail mary pass. Yeah, I mean, on top of that, like. The oath was even a test in Wade's eyes, right? Like if he had taken the oath, he wouldn't have chosen him. <laughs> right. Side note, do you have any thoughts on Wade himself? You know, Wade seems kind of like a for a typical kind of jerk boss with like, he's just giving Chongqing a hard time to give her a hard time, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, he seemed he more like a sociopath than just a bad boss or whatever. Cause yeah, he's like looking he, for he's like... He's happy when other people are sad and he's sad when other people are happy. Like that's... Yeah. That's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he just seems like kind of a jerk but uh but kind of an eyes on the prize kind of guy uh yeah is 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 he the leader we need i don't know right right yeah like he keeps talking about like would you sell your mother to a whorehouse and like will you make the hard decisions that kind of stuff and like yeah the, the maybe it's just like another commentary on americans because he's like the only american in yeah. the story it's like oh that's what americans are like they're all just like you know militaristic you know jerks sociopaths <laughs> right yeah so any other like thoughts around like i guess like what are your like overall impressions of this first part i mean i think it's very much in the stuff like i think it was a hard turn between three-body problem and dark forest but if, i think that does end is very much in the it, it, it seems to flow better um you know from one story it, like this seems more like it was more thought out right it's like you know if you think of like back to the future like part one was very different from parts two and three where they're you know filmed yeah. simultaneously this sort of seems like in that sort of mold to me yeah i kind of felt that way too yeah at the end of this it's you know constant through line through this you know series it's kind of hard to see where it's going um you know which is interesting although i think kind of what i mentioned earlier that in some ways this setup you know seems like a bit of a repeat of you know the, the wallfacer project or you know like the plot of the and i kind of i, I kind of hope it isn't like i you know we spend a lot of time building up to this uh launching a brain into space 
I imagine it's going to end up being important for some reason. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, a bit of a criticism of this is that like, it, it feels like a similar like story beat to the, to the second book. But given that we've seen so much of the future, you know, the far, you know, the, the farther couple hundred years in the future, I'm at this point, I'm curious as to when it makes that leap, you know, or if it makes that leap and we get to, and this being the final book, when we actually get to meet the Trisolarans and also whether uh, Ching Shin is a, is sort of like, ends up being like the protagonist of this book, uh, the way Luigi did, you know, was of the previous one. So Tim, on the last episode of the last, or two seasons ago, I don't know how we're doing season, um, Dan not warned you, but guided you to not read the the list of all the eras and all that did you did you manage to skip that or did you actually yeah read it? I, oh okay. i did not read that yeah oh so no i don't i mean like i you know as i was like i was you know reading this on a kindle so as i like paged by i saw that there was like a list of things but i successfully unfocused my eyes enough to <laughs> good not really take anything too much you know about it um, yeah well i i read that I read that whole thing. So, um, I so so you you read the okay. So, without spoiling it, do you think reading the table of errors would would have been a spoiler? No, I don't. No, you don't. Oh, interesting. I mean, a spoiler for the book or the spoiler for this section for the book? Yeah, because uh, we'll talk about it on the spoiler cast. Okay, I, I'll, I'll I'll let you know why I don't think it was. Right. Again, I, I don't think about this as critically as other people do, probably. And we also have very different tolerance for spoilers. <laughs> yes, that's also, that's also true. <laughs> I, so far, probably the same as Tim. So some of this feels like a rehash. And again, these characters don't seem... I'm not invested in the characters, really. I'm more invested in what, what the plot... What's going to happen regarding the plot and partly regarding the science fiction, like... You know the staircase program was was a cool thing, um, but really, I don't know. It it feels like a rehash of of the previous book, like Tim was saying. Yeah, I get that because it's like it's more of like we just got done with two hundred years in the future technology, right? And now we're going back to basically present day technology. So yeah, I get that. Yeah, and and basically, I, here's a plan to to get the Trisolarans. And last book it didn't work, so now here's another plan to get the Trisolarans. Maybe it'll work. I think uh, Changshin is a relatively decent, you know, interesting character so far in that just her, you know, she seems like a conflicted character um, in that she's obviously not a sociopath, but does a pretty <laughs> shitty thing in how she, you know, as as pitiful as uh, Tiangming might be, he doesn't like deserve that treatment, you know, where she basically comes in all weepy eyed and he thinks that, you know, she has at least some sort of affection or feelings for him. And, you know, she only kind of does like after the fact when she realizes what he's going to go through and what's, you know. Yeah. Actually, I, I actually wonder why like she was so like, yeah, like so emotional. Like it seemed like very much change, right? Like from Yuntian Ming's chapter, like she was all crying. Right. And then like later on, like she's just kind of more professional about it. Um, yeah. So, I, don't... I mean, was she acting or was, she, I don't think so. I mean, was she just emotional because like her project was in danger? Like this is like a good chance for her to like find like, a good candidate. So she was like worried that she's going to lose that chance. I mean, she, yeah, she this... describes as Yuan Timing as like more of an acquaintance. So like, I don't think she right. really had any direct attachment to him. Not, no, any, no. not right now anyway. It almost feels like a bit of a plot hole because you're right. There is a big like discrepancy between how Tang Min describes that where she like comes in and hugs him. And yeah. this is also before she even knows that she you know he 
purchased the star for yeah you know so it's not like there was you know oh you just at least some emotionality coming from that so she was putting on an act you know or that's pretty damn sociopathic even though (laughs) she's clearly not emotionally conflicted after the fact yeah i don't think that i don't think that was i mean i i I guess like i think the best explanation is that she was more worried about her job and like the status of the project than him himself right he was just like a means to the end of she thought he was the best candidate to fulfill that program and then he was almost going to you know uh, like ruin it right that that was my take anyway it also is a huge coincidence yeah maybe it's just necessary for the story but huge coincidence that this you know lovelorn past acquaintance for her you know happens to be the best terminally ill patient yeah yeah candidate for this so i guess finally the the I guess like a very broad question for both of you guys. I mean, I mean, you have a little more context than Tim or a lot more context. Um, but if you had to guess right now, do you think that the story, this book will end in like a happy way, a sad way, or like an in-between way? Um, I would definitely say an in-between way. I mean, mm. I don't know what that means, you know, like. Or an ambiguous of- way, sorry. I, I guess ambiguous is more of a a, a better term than in-between. Yeah, I don't think he necess- you know, I don't think the author is necessarily interested in like happy or sad outcomes. Like I think it's just more about the implications and the the concepts, you know, that are uh introduced and extrapolated upon. And he's obviously shown some very dark things already, you know, and I think he kinda like even in this chapter when he talk when Tiang Ming talks about how he could potentially be, you know, tortured eternally if the Trisolarians yeah. uh have their desire and the capability to do so. Like I'm yeah, I'm you know, I'm not sure. You know, I mean this this it's part of the strength of the series that it keeps you keeps you guessing. Yeah, I don't necessarily see like see this being like some sort of triumphant Steven Spielberg ending. For all that yeah, the kids riding their bike and they save the day. Beat the Trisolarians with like some, you know, weapon they made in the garage. <laughs> I don't think he's a nihilist either, you know, so I don't mm. I, I would say I think I'm more interested in seeing where this where this part of the story goes than I was in probably either of the previous two books hmm. um i i think he does a better job of of setting setting conditions that make it interesting for the reader viewer to continue on so do you um, think that's colored by the fact that talia and i keep talking about how awesome this book is i i i do think that's part of it <laughs> i i i will i will say like this book hasn't i, I know we've only read one seventh of this book so far or whatever whatever it yeah. is but i don't think it's blown me away yet where it's like oh my god this is the best book i've of the series but it's also not it's not the worst like that other like the other dan said so <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm i'm not committing to either side yet but i'm leaning towards you and talia more than this other character yeah to, to bring that back a little bit i don't know if, i don't know if we discussed it on the main show but yeah Dang Wing specifically said like the staircase program was his favorite part of this whole book, which is not true. <laughs> like, I mean, like it's interesting. Like, I think it's like I said, it's a cool part. It's a cool idea based off of like given the SOFON limitation and given current state of technology and given the fact that we just need to do something. Like, it's a cool idea to do it and like as a executed in an interesting way and it almost worked. I mean, it worked, I guess, in a way. It just didn't work entirely on the direction they wanted to put it at. 
but it's definitely yeah. not the best part of the book. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't. Th- I mean, even on a kind of grand, like, you know, scientific technological stunt scale, like, I, I don't necessarily think it's the coolest thing, but it is a good, like, it gives some context and some verisimilitude to the, and some background to how humanity kind of reached the state it did that, like, future humanity that we saw in the past book. Like, how did, you know, even with the Sophon lock and the physics lock, how did, they, you know, we manage to achieve this? And this does a good job of giving some context to this that through just kind of ingenuity and using what we got in creative ways, we were able to kind of progress, uh, you know, technologically instead of just stagnating. So I think it was cool world building in that, um, you know, sense, but yeah, it's not even necessarily like, you know, just from a bombast perspective, you know, it's as cool as like Ray Diaz's like blowing up Mercury plan from, (laughs) from the previous book. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. And please check out rehydrate.space for released episodes, reading list, pronunciation guide, and all the other stuff that we put up on the website. And leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And join us next time for Season 5, Episode 2, The Swordholders, covering the first half of Part 2 of Descend by Lisa Shin. <laughs> <laughs>